Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? Jerry Bundler by W. W. Jacobs. It wanted a few nights to Christmas, a festival for which the small market town of Torchester was making extensive preparations. The narrow streets which had been thronged with people were now almost deserted. The cheap Jack from London, with the remnant of breath left in him after his evening's exertions, was making feeble attempts to blow out his naphtha lamp, and the last shops open were rapidly closing for the night. In the comfortable coffee-room of the old boar's head, half a dozen guests, principally commercial travellers, sat talking by the light of the fire. The talk had drifted from trade to politics, from politics to religion, and so, by easy stages, to the supernatural. Three ghost stories never known to fail before had fallen flat. There was too much noise outside, too much light within. The fourth story was told by an old hand with more success. The streets were quiet, and he had turned the gas out. In the flickering light of the fire, as it shone on the glasses and danced with shadows on the walls, the story proved so enthralling that George, the waiter, whose presence had been forgotten, created a very disagreeable sensation by suddenly starting up from a dark corner and gliding silently from the room. "'That's what I call a good story,' said one of the men, sipping his hot whisky. Of course, it's an old idea that spirits like to get into the company of human beings. A man told me once that he travelled down the Great Western with a ghost and hadn't the slightest suspicion of it until the inspector came for the tickets. My friend said the way that the ghost tried to keep up appearances by feeling for it in all its pockets and looking on the floor it was quite touching. Ultimately, it gave up and with a faint groan vanished through the ventilator. That'll do, Hurst, said another man. It's not a subject for jesting, said a little old gentleman who had been an attentive listener. I've never seen an apparition myself, but I know people who have, and I consider that they form a very interesting link between us and the afterlife. There's a ghost story connected with this house, you know. Never heard of it, said another speaker, and I've been here some years now. It dates back a long time now said the old gentleman. "'You've heard about Jerry Bundler, George?' "'Well, I've just heard odds and ends, sir,' said the old waiter. "'But I never put much count on him. "'There was one chap here what said he saw it, "'and the governor sacked him prompt.' "'My father was a native of this town,' said the old gentleman, "'and knew the story well. "'He was a truthful man and a steady churchgoer, but I've heard him declare that once in his life he saw the appearance of Jerry Bundler in this house. Uh, and who was this Jerry Bundler? inquired a voice. A London thief, a pickpocket, a highwayman, anything he could turn his dishonest hand to, replied the old gentleman. And he was run to earth in this house one Christmas week some eighty years ago. He took his last supper in this very room, and after he had gone up to bed, a couple of Bow Street runners, who had followed him from London, but lost the scent a bit, went upstairs with the landlord and tried the door. It was stout oak, 
and fast. So one went into the yard and by means of a short ladder got onto the window sill, while the other stayed outside the door. Those below in the yard saw the man crouching on the sill, and then there was a sudden smash of glass, and with a cry he fell in a heap on the stones at their feet. Then in the moonlight they saw the white face of the pickpocket peeping over the sill, and while some stayed in the yard, others ran into the house and helped the other man to break the door in. It was difficult to obtain an entrance even then, for it was barred with heavy furniture. But they got in at last, and the first thing that met their eyes was the body of Jerry dangling from the top of the bed by his own handkerchief. Which bedroom was it? asked two or three voices together. The narrator shook his head. That I can't tell you, but the story goes that Jerry still haunts his house, and my father used to declare positively that the last time he slept here, the ghost of Jerry Bundler lowered itself from the top of his bed and tried to strangle him. That'll do, said an uneasy voice. I wish you'd thought to ask your father which bedroom it was. What for? inquired the old gentleman. Well, I should take care not to sleep in it, that's all, said the voice shortly. There's nothing to fear, said the other. I don't believe for a moment that ghosts could really hurt one. In fact, my father used to confess that it was only the unpleasantness of the thing that upset him, and that for all practical purposes, Jerry's fingers might have been made of cotton wool, for all the harm they could do. That's all very fine, said the last speaker again. A ghost story is a ghost story, sir. But when a gentleman tells a tale of a ghost in the house in which one is going to sleep, I call it most ungentlemanly. Puff! Nonsense, said the old gentleman, rising. Ghosts can't hurt you. For my own part, I should rather like to see one. Good night, gentlemen. Good night, said the others. And I only hope Jerry will pay you a visit, added the nervous man as the door closed. Bring some more whiskey, George, said a stout commercial. I want keeping up when the talk turns this way. Shall I light the gas, Mr. Malcolm, said George. No, the fire's very comfortable, said the traveller. Now, gentlemen, any of you know any more? I think we've had enough, said another man. We shall be thinking we see spirits next, and we're not at all like the old gentleman who's just gone. Old humbug, said Hurst. I should like to put him to the test. Suppose I dress up as Jerry Bundler and go and give him a chance of displaying his courage. Bravo, said Malcolm huskily, drowning one or two faint no's. Just for the joke, gentlemen. No, no, drop it, Hurst, said another man. Only for the joke, said Hurst somewhat eagerly. I've got some things upstairs in which I'm going to play in the rivals, knee breeches, buckles and all that sort of thing. It's a rare chance. If you wait a bit, I'll give you a full dress rehearsal entitled Jerry Bundler, or The Nocturnal Strangler. You won't frighten us, said the commercial with a husky laugh. I don't know that, said Hurst sharply. It's a question of acting, that's all. I'm pretty good, ain't I, Summers? Oh, uh, you're all right, for an amateur, said his friend with a laugh. I'll bet you a level sov... You don't frighten me, said the stout traveller. Done, said Hurst. I'll take the bet to frighten you first and the old gentleman afterwards. These gentlemen shall be the judges. 
You won't frighten us, sir, said another man, because we're prepared for you. But you'd better leave the old man alone. It's dangerous play. Well, I'll try you first, said Hurst, springing up. No gas, mind. He ran lightly upstairs to his room, leaving the others, most of whom had been drinking somewhat freely, to wrangle about the proceedings. It ended in two of them going to bed. He's crazy on acting, said Summers, lighting his pipe. Thinks he's the equal of anybody, almost. It doesn't matter with us, but I won't let him go to the old man. And he won't mind, as long as he gets an opportunity of acting to us. Well, I hope he'll hurry up, said Malcolm, yawning. It's after twelve now. Nearly half an hour passed. Malcolm drew his watch from his pocket and was busy winding it when George, the waiter, who had been sent on an errand to the bar, burst suddenly into the room and rushed towards them. He's coming, gentlemen, he said breathlessly. Why, you're frightened, George, said the stout commercial with a chuckle. It was the suddenness of it, said George sheepishly. And besides, I didn't look for seeing him in the bar. There's only a glimmer of light there, and he was sitting on the floor behind the bar. I nearly trod on him. Oh, you'll never make a man, George, said Malcolm. Well, he took me unaware, said the waiter. Not that I'd have gone to the bar bar myself, if I'd known he was there. And I don't believe you would either, sir. Nonsense, said Malcolm. I'll go and fetch him in. You don't know what it's like, sir, said George, catching him by the sleeve. It ain't fit to look at by yourself. It ain't. Indeed, it's got the... What's that? They all started at the sound of a smothered cry from the staircase and the sound of somebody running hurriedly along the passage. Before anybody could speak, the door flew open and a figure bursting into the room flung itself, gasping and shivering upon them. "'What is it? What's the matter?' demanded Malcolm. "'Why, it's Mr. Hurst!' He shook him roughly, and then held some spirit to his lips. Hurst drank it greedily, and with a sharp intake of his breath, gripped him by the arm. "'Light the gas, George,' said Malcolm. The waiter obeyed hastily. Hurst, a ludicrous but pitiable figure, in knee-breeches and coat, a large rig all awry, and his face a mess of grease-paint, clung to him, trembling. "'Now what's the matter?' asked Malcolm. "'I've seen it,' said Hurst with a historical sob. "'Oh, Lord, I'll never play the fool again. Never!' "'Seen what?' said the others. "'Him! It! The ghost! Anything!' said Hurst wildly. "'Rot!' said Malcolm uneasily. "'I was coming down the stairs,' said Hurst, just capering down, as I thought it ought to do. I felt a tap.' He broke off suddenly and peered nervously through the open door into the passage. I thought I saw it again, he whispered. Look, at the foot of the stairs, can you see anything? No, there's nothing there, said Malcolm, whose own voice shook a little. Go on, you felt a tap on your shoulder. I turned round and saw it, a little wicked head and a white, dead face. Ah, that's what I saw in the bar, said George. Horrid it was, devilish. Hurst shuddered and was still retaining his nervous grip of Malcolm's sleeve dropped into a chair. "'Well, it's a most unaccountable thing,' said the dumbfounded Malcolm, turning round to the others. "'It's the last time I come to this house.' "'I'll leave tomorrow,' said George. "'I wouldn't go down in that bar again by myself. "'Now, not for fifty pan.' "'It's talking about the thing that's caused it, I expect,' said one of the men. "'We've all been talking about this and having it in our minds. "'Practically, we've been forming a spiritualistic circle without knowing it.' "'Hang the old gentleman,' said Malcolm heartily. "'Pon my soul, I'm half afraid to go to bed.' 
It's odd they should both think they saw something. I saw it as plain as I'll see you, sir, said George solemnly. Perhaps if you keep your eyes turned up the passage, you'll see it for yourself. They followed the direction of his finger, but saw nothing, although one of them fancied that a head peeped round the corner of the wall. We'll come down to the bar, said Malcolm, looking round. You can go if you like, said one of the others with a faint laugh. Uh, We'll wait here for you. The stout traveller walked towards the door and took a few steps up the passage. Then he stopped. All was silent, and he walked slowly to the end and looked down fearfully towards the glass partition which shut off the bar. Three times he made as though to go to it. Then he turned back and, glancing over his shoulder, came hurriedly back to the room. "'Did you see it, sir?' whispered George. "'Don't know,' said Malcolm shortly. "'I fancied I saw something. "'But it might have been fancy. "'I'm in the mood to see anything just now. "'How are you feeling now, sir?' "'Oh, I feel a bit better now,' said Hurst, somewhat brusquely, "'as all eyes were turned on him. "'I dare say you think I'm easily scared, but you didn't see it.' "'Not at all,' said Malcolm, smiling faintly, despite himself. "'I'm going to bed,' said Hurst, noticing the smile and resenting it. "'Will you share my room with me, Summers?' "'I will with pleasure,' said his friend, "'provided you don't mind sleeping with the gas on full all night.' He rose from his seat, and bidding the company a friendly good night, left the room with his crestfallen friend. The others saw them to the foot of the stairs, and having heard their door close, returned to the coffee-room. "'Well, suppose the bet's off,' said the stout commercial, poking the fire and then standing with his legs apart on the hearth-rug. "'Though, as far as I can see, I won it. I never saw a man as scared in all my life. Sort of poetic justice about it, isn't there?' "'Never mind about poetry or justice,' said one of his listeners. "'Who's going to sleep with me?' "'I will,' said Malcolm affably. "'And I suppose we share a room together, Mr. Leake?' said the third man, turning to the fourth. "'No, thank you,' said the other briskly. "'I don't believe in ghosts. "'If anything comes into my room, I shall shoot it.' "'That won't hurt a spirit, Leake,' said Malcolm decisively. "'Well, the noise'll be like company to me,' said Leake, "'and it'll wake the house too. "'But if you're nervous, sir,' he added with a grin to the man "'who had suggested sharing his room, "'George will be only too pleased to sleep on the doormat inside your room, I know.' "'That I will, sir,' said George fervently. "'And if you gentlemen would only come down with me to the bar to put the gas out, "'I could never be sufficiently grateful.' They went out in a body, with the exception of Leek, peering carefully before them as they went. George turned the light out in the bar, and they returned, unmolested, to the coffee-room, and— Avoiding the sardonic smile of Leek, prepared to separate for the night. "'Give me the candle while you put the gas out, George,' said the traveller. The waiter handed it to him and extinguished the gas, and at the same moment all distinctly heard a step in the passage outside. It stopped at the back door, and as they watched with bated breath, the door creaked and slowly opened. Malcolm fell back open-mouthed as a white, leering face with sunken eyeballs and close-cropped bullet head appeared in the opening. For a few seconds the creature stood regarding them, blinking in a strange fashion at the candle. Then, with a sidling movement, it came a little way into the room and stood there as if bewildered. 
Not a man spoke or moved, but all watched with a horrible fascination as the creature removed its dirty neckcloth and its head rolled on its shoulder. For a minute it paused and then, holding the rag before it, moved towards Malcolm. The candle went out suddenly with a flash and a bang. There was a smell of powder and something writhing in the darkness on the floor, a faint choking cough, and then silence. Malcolm was the first to speak. Matches, he said in a strange voice. George struck one. Then he leapt at the gas and the burner flamed from the match. Malcolm touched the thing on the floor with his foot and found it soft. He looked at his companions. They mouthed inquiries at him, but he shook his head. He lit the candle and, kneeling down, examined the silent thing on the floor. Then he rose swiftly and, dipping his handkerchief in the water jug, bent down again and grimly wiped the white face. Then he sprang back with a cry of incredulous horror, pointing at it. Leek's pistol fell to the floor, and he shut out the sight with his hands, but the others, crowding forward, gazed spellbound at the dead face of Hurst. Before a word was spoken, the door opened and Summers hastily entered the room, his eyes fell on the floor. Good God, he cried. You didn't. Nobody spoke. I, I told him not to, he said in a suffocating voice. I told him not to. I told him. He leaned against the wall, deathly sick, put his arms out feebly, and fell fainting into the traveller's arms. That was The Ghost of Jerry Bundler by William Weimark Jacobs. It was first published in Windsor Magazine, Volume 8, 1897-98, with illustrations by Harold Piffard. Amazing what you can learn. And it was adapted into a play, The Ghost of Jerry Bundler, in 1899, which was first produced in St. James's Theatre, London, June 20th, 1899. You can actually see why it would make a very good play. In fact, I may ask my thespian friend, Ben, if we could maybe do it. That would be rather fun, wouldn't it? Actually, that would be a very lovely idea. I just broke off and sent him, sent him the script, so you never know what will happen. I like the beginning of it. It wanted a few nights to Christmas, of course. The old sense of want is, is lack. I want that as I lack that. So it wanted a few nights to Christmas. And the small market town of Torchester... And then you have the comfortable coffee room, which I guess is the bar of the Boar's Head, which there are commercial travellers now. There are quite a lot of ghost stories set in public bar, bar rooms in these, uh, these provincial country towns at, in England at Christmas. Saviour Gate is another one. Look at that one up. We've done it on the thing on the podcast, uh, Russell Kirk's Saviour Gate. But also Robert Aikman's Ringing the Bells, not Christmas there, but it's, a lot of it's set in a public bar of a hotel. M.R. James is a um, story of a, a disappearance and an appearance, which we've also done. Also has extensive, it's set over the Christmas period as well. And it seems that there were these bagmen or um, commercial travellers, as they were called later, people selling sales samples up and down the country. 
And in the early days, some of them actually walked, but I guess others would have horses and things. This is the late 19th century, so it's a similar time to M.R. James. Um, now, you just get this idea that they're kind of marooned over Christmas. But they can't get home, so they're going to stay in this, this country hotel. Funnily enough, I had a funny experience many years ago. This is not a ghostly experience. Two friends of mine and I had a car, and we were in our 20s, and we decided we were going to leave London and drive. So we drove down the M4, and we got as far as uh, Wiltshire, and it was foggy. And we couldn't get any further. It was really, really foggy. So we pulled off. I think we cr went across Salisbury Plain. Very, just exactly the right weather for a ghost story, but nothing happened. And we pulled into the White Bear in Devizes, which is an old coaching inn, much like this. And there was nobody in. Nobody could get into town because the fog was so thick. So the, the, the public bar was quite empty. We managed to get ourselves some bed for the night. And we sat there with this roaring fire surrounded by the fog and, and drank whiskey, actually, is not my normal tipple. And it was so cosy. Um, and I, and this, all these stories bring, bring this back to me. So anyway, that is a digression. But there we have the scene. The pub, the, it's a, probably not the public bar, it was the ruffians bar, but the saloon bar of a, an old coaching inn in a country town somewhere in England just before Christmas. So we're set up there. Now, you will know that William Wymark Jacobs wrote a, a number of very successful ghost stories. The most famous one that's been made into loads of films is The, the Monkey's Paw, which, again, we've done on the podcast, and you could... Uh, no spoilers, as they say. You can go and look it up. So W.W. Jacobs, and everybody went by their initials in those days. Think of J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and they're, another, they're a later generation, but everybody, C.P. Snow, everybody went by their um, initials. H.P. Lovecraft, all of them. So anyway, he was, W.W. Uh, uh, Jacobs was born on 8th September 1863 at Wapping, then in Middlesex. It's hard to think of Wapping not being part of London because it was the old county of Middlesex, the kingdom of the Middle Saxons. You have Essex, the South Saxons, and Sussex, the Su South Saxons, yeah. Sussex and Essex, East Saxons. And Middlesex, those are the ones who live, the Saxons who live between those. So the two types of Saxons. Saxons known for their knife. The Saxe was the big knife, like a small sword that the Saxons were famous for using. That's why they were called it. And of course, Saxony is originally in Germany. There is a Saxony in Germany as well. They're all Saxons, right? Okay, W.W. Jacobs may not have been a Saxon because uh, he was born a couple of thousand, well, at least a thousand, fifteen hundred years after the original Middle Saxons. If you ever go to um, London, go to and you want to get a bit of atmosphere it's been gentrified a bit now but go to the the old pub the pub there called the prospect of whitby and there's the captain kid as well there's some fantastic old riverside pubs in london and you can sit there on a winter's evening looking out over the river having a drink and watching the night gather on the river it's just so atmospheric i love the prospect of whitby when I lived in London, a friend of mine worked at the Australian High Commission because he was an Australian and called Mike Richards, and he's from Melbourne. And he, the, the embassy, the High Commission, uh, they're called, there's a story, if you don't know this, the, the countries that used to be part of the British Empire and therefore the British Commonwealth, they weren't embassies because they weren't considered foreign so they, they had high commissions. And even after independence, 
they remain the name High Commission. So they don't have an ambassador, they have a High Commissioner. So it is for the South Africans and the Canadians and the Australians, New Zealanders, um, Indians, all, all of that. So anyway, so yeah, he lived next door to, to the prospect of Whitby. So we used to go and see him and then pop into the pub. What a great time it was. So this is where W.W. W. Jacobs was born, not in the prospect of Whitby. And of course, that part of London, it's near Execution Dock where the pirates used to be chained up and allowed to drown in the incoming tide. Very cruel, really. Uh, his dad was to do with the docks and ran the South Devon Wharf at Lower East. This means something to somebody. Jacobs went to a private London school before attending Birkbeck College, or Burbeck College, I think you say, now part of the Uni University of London. So I did night classes at Birkbeck Co College. I think I did English mythology or mythology. Anyway, he was a diligent man, though. He worked first in, from 1879 as a clerk in the post office savings bank, which wasn't a very prestigious job, but it's a job. And we have got to keep a wolf from the door. And he, in 1885, now he, at that time, was 22. He had his first short story published, uh, but success came slowly. And by, but by 1899, he, remember this was, this was published in, I was just reading the review of it on, uh, I don't know if you know, oldstyletales.com, which is run by a guy called Grant Kellermeyer, and he publishes a lot of um, books of this genre, very nice editions. He does the illustrations himself. They're, they're really, really nice. Anyway, he he says there's no revelation at the end, but I think there kind of is. Clearly, this is actually not a ghost story, but it's set up to be a ghost story, which is the great thing about it. We're expecting ghosts, and because we're expecting ghosts, we this allows the story to work. So we are, because of the genre, because of the setup, we are fully open to expect the supernatural origin to this and but it's if you think about it it's completely set up there's this amateur dramatics guy who loves acting and we told this and he just says he bets uh, and there's the old gentleman and you know who scares him with the story of jerry bundle and he's like yeah i can do this he he, he has costume for the period because he's appearing in an amateur dramatics thing so he thinks right i can i bet i can scare you and he comes down and it's like, uh, um, oh, it, it's a complete setup. And we are first led to believe that the scare fails, which then sets us up for, the, the, you know, what we're expecting then, because we're primed for a ghost story. This is a genre. So, so we expect the ghost to be real. And, and there are little things like he was seen in the bar by the bartender and what with George. And we're thinking, well, what would he be doing in the bar if it was a setup? It isn't really the actor. It is the ghost, and we're completely left wide open to believe it's a ghost because because of the genre. And then when it turns out not to be a ghost, and it's just our man who just is so obsessed by scaring people, a bit like myself, that he just can't give up on the joke, and he gets shot. And we, we, we're primed for the for the um, uh, but for the shooting as well. Because and uh, as um, Grant Kellermeyer says, the ludicrous situation of these kind of portly middle-aged men all too scared to sleep alone because of some story and the one who isn't has his gun and if he comes he'll get shot so it's totally set up and then at the end there's this ghastly face comes around and he does it really well and boom gets shot and then 
the actor Summers comes down, his mate comes down and goes, I told him not to do it, I told him. And we've had friends like that, haven't we? We've all had friends who were just going to go far too far. And we told them, look, this is far too far. And they just couldn't let it be. Most of them didn't end up getting shot. If you have had any friends who did get shot, I must apologise. So, okay, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a lovely story. It's the most second famous story of W.W. Jacobs after the monkey's paw. That's a good story as well. And you know, to write this guy, this is why he kept, he, you know, became successful enough to earn his living as a writer. So W.W. William Wymack Jacobs, a good egg, I think. Right, so I'm going to explain something. I had a commission um, from uh, Gavin Critchley, who commissions me every now and again, probably once a quarter, to do a story, and he pays me for my time, and then he, after his generosity, allows me to release it on the podcast for everybody, not for members, but for everybody. And so I, um, I figured, he said to me, pick your own. And I was going to do one of Dickens's Christmas stories. I've done a Christmas carol. You listen to that on the podcast. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll do another his Christmas stories, and I picked one up. And I meant to do the story of the goblin who sold the sexton, I think it is, but I ended up doing the chimes. And in, chi in fact, the chimes is a New Year's story. It's long, it's worthwhile, but I'm not going to put it. And Gavin had said to me, do one for Christmas, but I'm going to do it for New Year. So I'm going. I've done two for him. This is one. So this is dedicated to Gavin Critchley, who, as we often joke, is the great patron of the arts, some Italian baron like Cosimo Medici. And uh, although I, I, I always say I'm no Michelangelo. Uh, and so this is for him. This is a Christmas one, Christmas Day. It's a shorter one because I know you've got other things to do on Christmas Day. And then the longer one, the chimes, which is a couple of hours, potentially three hours, I think. I don't know if it's, is it three hours? It's long anyway. That's going to be New Year's. So both the New Year's and the Christmas Day uh, my, my thanks to Gavin for helping me through the year. Uh, like, thanks to all of you who helped me, really. All of my patrons and my paid sub-stackers and my YouTube members and the people who pay extra on Apple to get the exclusive stories that have allowed me, really, to cut down my days from five days a week to two days a week and spend the rest of the time producing stories for you. So that is like a dream come true. So at the end of this year, I'd like to thank Gavin Critchley, for this particular commission and I'd like to thank all of you who have helped me during the year. And then there's another group who are the people who comment and who write great reviews. So it's not all about money. Support isn't just about money. Support's about support as well. So all the people who've written me really nice reviews on Audible and uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, Stitcher and all the different places and YouTube, obviously, then I really want to thank you. So I hope you've had a lovely Christmas day, lovely story to end it with. Um, and I will next be in touch with you on New Year's Eve with the chimes from Charles Dickens, New Year's Eve 2022. Okay. I also need to thank the Hartwood Institute um, for Jonathan's support of me all, all through the year and the use of his music, Some Come Back. This last piece is... And not by him, it's by Widow's Weeds Revenant by Grim Alkin and his friends. Utterly beautiful. And uh, I have got his permission. I hope he remembers, but I emailed him about a year ago asking if I could use it, and I haven't. But I thought it was um, a beautiful, beautiful thing to finish on Christmas with.
Merry Christmas again.